Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. And this is John. We know that many of you might be joining us for the first or second time. We want to say welcome to what we're doing here. It's been a, a great couple of years, and we're finally getting the recognition we deserve, I feel like. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I just, I'm just deserve. been excited. I've just been no, excited. It's been, a, it's been an awesome week. You know, we were in the top 10 yeah, overall. Yeah, we hit number 10. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's like... It's like hitting the lottery, but yeah. we have awesome guests on. We know that's why you come to listen, not because of us, and we're not disappointing. We have the man on today. We're going to talk to you about gambling, Wall Street, and baseball, which are three of the coolest things. I mean, that's pretty much uh, America's pastime, right? Yeah. I mean... Of course. <laughs> this week, we talk with Joe Pita. He is a first-time author, but long-time fan of baseball and he was a wall street analyst went to stanford mba he's a cpa he's gonna blow your mind with some awesome stories the way he wrote his book alone is an amazing story the things he kind of went through and then his publisher said hey here's a chunk of money go to vegas and prove that this works and he did it with a 41 percent return gambling on baseball Obviously, we can tell who the degenerate gambler of the group is here. Easy. I saw you get a little excited a couple times during this interview. Yeah, but I know you did too. Oh, yeah. By the end, I was like, hey, how can I do this? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's an awesome one. Joe's a great guy. His book, which is fantastic, is called Trading Bases, a story about Wall Street, gambling, and baseball. And even if you're not a baseball fan per se, you really pick up some good things here. So we're going to turn it over to Joe here in a minute. I know John wanted to tell you guys the only thing we ask of you for providing this free service. If you're a first-time listener or if you listen to a few episodes and you like the show, please do me a favor 
and subscribe. It's super easy. You can subscribe on iTunes on your computer. You can subscribe on your podcast catcher if you have Android. But the most easy way to do it is using Apple's podcast app on the iPhone. Just go over to our show on there, hit the subscribe button, and you won't have to worry about missing any shows we put out. And as you know, or might not know, we do this weekly, so you want to make sure that you get those as our guests now, continually to be awesome. So we're going to turn it over to Joe and teach you a little bit about gambling, Wall Street, and baseball. I wanted to start on Wall Street. It's it's okay. one of, it's one of those magical places to an outsider, and it conjures up these images of slimy brokers and Boiler Room, which is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> so, and you you were there for a while. You saw it kind of in the Wild West days and in the more regulatory days. So, I wanted to get your take on it all. Is it what we kind of believe it to be? Legalized gambling? Uh, yes, absolutely. And to even touch on your first point too. Because there's so much money at stake, uh, it does attract bad actors. Um, and so there is going to be a certain percentage of participants, even at your bigger investment bank firms, or what we think of as the white shoe firms that you know are attracting and hiring the best and the brightest. There's still some bad actors, and and I would, uh, it wouldn't be honest to say that I didn't see you know, elements of that in, in many different ways. But it definitely is, I think, and this sort of attracted me to writing the book, it is legalized gambling, but I prefer to think of it as an exercise in critical reasoning and in that traders have to, and, and even portfolio managers, have to be very good at making decisions and confidently making decisions based on incomplete information. And that, to me, is the whole purpose of critical reasoning. And I love that exercise, and I think that sabermetrics is an offshoot of that exercise, and so is trading, and so is gambling as an investment. Not gambling as entertainment, but gambling as investment. So I think when you kind of look at all three of those, they have that similarity. Sure, and you mentioned sabermetrics. I definitely want to jump into that for a lot of people that don't know much about it, but they are aware of, you know, Moneyball kind of brought it to the forefront. Have you always been interested in the analytics behind investments, kind of number crunching, modeling, those types of things? Yeah, I definitely have. And it kind of goes back to you can, before I could even put terms on those words, you know, I was a, uh, I, I struggled with my verbal SAT, <laughs> aced the, uh, the quantitative part, uh, uh, was an accounting major in college, went, became a CPA to do tax work. Um, and then I got my MBA solely for the purpose of going to Wall Street to trade stocks. So all those certainly indicated that I did love sort of the quantitative element. I had never pulled out a, a spreadsheet to do my own sabermetric calculations, but I was certainly aware of Bill James' writing, and I had a decade's worth of baseball perspective annuals on my shelves, and I always loved that critical reasoning, that that sort of different way of looking uh, at something, and especially if it ended up coming to a non-consensus conclusion. Right. Okay. And for those that don't know, could you, in your opinion, kind of tell us what sabermetrics means now, now that it's been given this spotlight, if you will? Yeah, I think it is a, 
sabermetric, you know, by definition is the study of baseball data. But I think the value that we can get out of that is understanding that data can really do, I think data when analyzed properly can really identify two things. It can identify skill sets and mindsets. And in the case, and, and I think Nate Silver's career is a perfect example of that. When he studied, when he, when he was a baseball sabermetician and all the work that Bill James did would be the same thing, what those guys were, discover, what those guys were identifying was skill sets. They were saying, hey, there's a better way to look at batters than batting average. There's a better way to look at pictures than one-loss records. And they showed some very logical but non-obvious ways of determining skill sets because they proved skill sets were a better indicator of future performance than you know, some of these results-driven uh, past performance was. And then when I think about mindsets, that's what... Nate Silver then moved over to elections, and, and by studying that data, he was able to determine the mindset of the electorate. And interestingly enough, tying that back to Wall Street, I think that financial institutions are sitting on incredible amounts of trading data that they do not use, and I think they can use it both ways. I think they can use it to discover skill sets of their traders, their PMs, maybe even their customers, but they definitely, especially in the case of, say, retail brokerage firms, they can use it to discover the mindset or what you know, we call on Wall Street investor sentiment. And I think that that is a real untapped – I think looking at what baseball has done with data, the financial industry is way behind the curve, which to me is ironic because the financial industry is worth multiples – you know, as an industry of what of what baseball is. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say you would imagine that it would start in the financial industry and then trickle down where you're kind of saying that hasn't happened in your opinion. Yeah. Let me give you an example. In baseball, I think certainly general managers know not to look at a pictures one loss record as indicative of who we're going to throw a large free agent contract at. In the 1970s, I think George Steinbrenner would have thrown a, a large contract at any pitcher that won 20 games. Now we might look and say, uh, this 20-game winner, yeah, he was on a team. He had, he had great offensive support. His defense played great behind him. You know, he was very lucky at, at the rate he stranded guys on base. You know, we'd be able to deconstruct that. In the financial industry, I guarantee you, if you walk into a trading floor and say, hey, who's your best trader? They will point to the guy that had the highest P&L the year before. <laughs> you walk into a mutual fund and say, who's the best portfolio manager? They'll point to the guy that beat the S&P by the most the last year. And that is, that is identifying results, not skill sets. And I can tell you from being on a trading floor, it is not often the guy that has the highest P&L that's the best trader. He may have been given the access to, to the most capital. He may have traded a sector that just happened to be hot that year. And, you know, the old rising tide raises all boats. I don't see the financial industry really doing anything to try to tease out the difference between skill sets and results. You know what's really interesting about that is we always think about, you know, people say, oh, past performance doesn't indicate future performance and things like that. And that's one of those things that people struggle with because they say, okay, well, we can't predict the future, though, so we have to go off that. And I've been following your emails and, and read your book and everything, and I love the way you almost – 
use knowledge, current knowledge, not historical data per se, but current knowledge to predict those future outcomes, if you will. Like you're saying, skill sets and really things that wouldn't fluctuate as much as just past performance. Right. Results fluctuate a lot more than skill sets. I think that is true in just about any profession where you have veteran performers, whether it's somebody that's been trading for a number of years or a baseball player that's been in the, in the majors for six or plus years, his skill set has stabilized. His results will go up and down because you know, that's just variance. But I still want to, I want to if as an employer, I want the guys on my team and I will pay the guys the most that have the best skill sets. That's so interesting. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about, do you build models or how do you kind of aggregate your data? Because it is, I'm a finance major. I understand Excel. It's a foreign concept to me. When I try to do a fantasy draft and get all this data, eventually I just get overwhelmed. I say, screw it. I buy the ESPN magazine and go off of their ratings. You know, So I want to get inside the mind of somebody who has done this successfully how, what is it? I mean, or are you just really kind of guessing and you're better at it than us? Uh, I, I don't, I would, what I'm definitely not doing is truly inventing something new. That is not what I'm doing. I have, I do not have the ability to program, uh, and I'm not an engineer. So there are definitely times when I will sort of face issues of regression and even optimal weighting of certain factors where I run into problems, uh, you know, and then I'm, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm doing gorilla math to, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to figure it out. But I would say that the approach that I take is sort of like finance and sort of like, you know, if you're building the valuation for a company where, you know, usually for a company, you start at the division level, right? And you put the divisions together and, you know, you make assumptions there and then it all sort of flows up into what the company is worth. And I do do the same thing and that I start with individual player projections. And while those were originally sort of created, I'd say, a decade ago by Nate Silver and, and the Pocota system, uh, there are other ones out there, and I use a little bit of a blend on hitters for pictures. I pretty much use my own stuff, um, which is, and I talk about it in the book, how Sierra, uh, that stat is is what I really am dependent on to predict uh, future picture performance. And then I use a little bit of, you know, I add in some velocity uh, factors too. And so in that sense, I've I've kind of, tweaked my own stuff. What I'm really doing is just tweaking what some of the rocket scientists have created over the last decade. Right. I mean, I guess that makes sense, John. Do you have some? Yeah. I mean, are you throwing this stuff in Excel, like Chris mentioned, you know, with the modeling? Are you using, you know, other tools out there that do statistics analysis? I don't. I use Excel. Now, there are times when I do, I do use, when I need a regression function, I think I have an add-on or okay. add-in, I, I guess is what it's called in Excel, uh, that I use. Um, but I essentially have a spreadsheet for each team that is player-driven, and it is based on assumptions of playing time that come from other sources. And I essentially, for, that's how I come up with my, and I essentially, it's it, it sort of a runs-created, uh, it has a runs-created element to it. In that, you know, I take those playing time projections, I use each player's, you know, each player's stats or, or uh, projection and come up with the team's runs scored. 
and then for runs allowed, you know, I do two different things. I for for bullpens, I largely have found that they regress toward the mean year over year. That league leading bullpens and league worst bullpens, you have a better chance of predicting what they're going to do the next year to simply take the last year's league ERA. Uh, and then for starters, I you know I use this Sierra. I use a velocity overlay on it, and I, so I simply come up with a runs allowed prediction for single pictures. And then I use the predictions of how many innings they're going to throw, make sure everything you know adds up to 162 games, uh, uh, the right amount of plate appearances and innings pitched, and viola. Then you have your team projections. And then when it comes to playing an individual game, I essentially take each starting lineup and assume, okay, if these guys that are playing tonight played all 162 games, how many runs scored and runs allowed would this lineup have? And what you find is that there are some nights – when the Tigers are sending out a 115, 120-win team out there, you know, when Verlander's starting and they, they have all their starters in the lineup. Other times when, you know, Drew Smiley's starting or, you know, they might be throwing out their 76-win team. And that's how I come up with uh, essentially single-game projections. Now, I don't want to assume that you're – You've completed like this model that you've built. I'm sure that you probably tinker with it every now and then, but I'm fascinated by this. And can you give us like a rough estimate of how many hours that you just poured into this? Because, you know, me and a couple of my friends tried to do this with a fantasy football spreadsheet and we spent hours on it and eventually we're just like, all right, screw this. It too went hard. nowhere. It yeah, went it nowhere. went nowhere. <laughs> I'm I mean, I'm guessing that it probably took you hundreds, if not thousands of hours to put this I together. I would say thousands. If there are 2,080 hours in a work year, uh, I have put that in. Oh, that's amazing. And, and which, now you have to remember, two years ago when I got run over by an ambulance and it curtailed my ability to work and I was stranded 2,500 miles from my family, that's when I realized I had all day to start doing this. And as I got fascinated with it, I became obsessed. And then once I got a book contract, you know, then I had another year to, you know, want do it again in 2012 and then also try to refine things. So there is definitely, I'd say there was, you know, there's probably a a year worth of full-time writing that occurred and a year worth of full-time number crunching. And, you know, I know we're jumping around a little here, but our listeners are used to that because you mentioned the ambulance event. And, you know, having been privy to some of this knowledge prior to having received your emails and kind of knowing you through some others, I know the story, but it's a fascinating way that you got to where you are. And it's one of those things that you would never want these things to occur. But now you're probably like, wow. This is pretty awesome. So could you, you, know, could you kind of just give us that? Sure, sure. And, and that, as if that hasn't struck me enough over the year, I'll tell you about a story from just this week that really drove that home. So, yeah, two years ago, uh, and my book starts out with the day it happens. Um, I, got, I was in lower Manhattan, and I got run over by an ambulance. I was in the crosswalk just as a pedestrian, and the truck turned a corner, and just didn't, didn't see me. And it wasn't on a run. It wasn't an emergency or anything. They were just, it was a quiet Sunday morning. And I got my leg run over. And, you know, it was a Joe Theismann-like injury. Oh. And it was, uh, you know, it was devastating from a pain standpoint, from an uncertainty standpoint going forward. I, I really was worried about walking normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, like I said, I, I was bored and I, I was out of work. And that's when I really turned to baseball to sort of occupy my mind. And you're right. You, 
I didn't want my career on Wall Street to end that way, but it is kind of really nice to look back and say, okay, you turned a negative into a positive, because there would have never been a book deal. I, I never had an idea to write a book. Um, I certainly you know, never would have dove into baseball like that. And the way it all kind of came to me was, you really, you won't believe this. So last Monday, I was on the CBS Morning Show, and I walked into the green room, and it was, they were just about to have their 8 o'clock break. And Gail King comes running off the desk and comes running into the green room. And I wasn't due to go on for about 40 minutes. And she sits down next to me, and she starts, she pulls my book out, and she's got pages of notes. What? And she is enthusiastically telling me how much she loved the anecdotes on Manny Sanguin and Gwyneth Paltrow and Bruce Springsteen. And she's like, this book just came alive. And she's quoting back to me some of her favorite quotes from the book. And, and they're calling her on set, and they're like, you know, two minutes, one minute, 30 seconds, Gail. So she gets up to, uh, to leave the green room, and then she turns around and says, oh, and your story about Steve Wynn and Frank Sinatra, uh, I love the line about the towels. Wow. And then she runs back to the desk. And I was sitting there, and I'm like, never in my life. You just cannot predict that. I got run over by an ambulance, and two years later, Gail King is quoting me back to me with enthusiasm. Yeah. It, it, it was, I just thought that was one of the coolest things. And when I was flying home to San Francisco that night, I just started getting ridiculously sentimental about that moment. I just thought, that is just amazing. It's funny how that works. I, you know, I just, I can't imagine it, but it was due. It's one of those things, if you wouldn't have gone down the road of writing and sharing this kind of stuff, I don't know. I, I think it would have come out eventually. Well, I do. There, there was a point in the process where I did think, how has nobody done this before? Right, because right. I looked at my bookcase and I really saw three types of books dominating my bookcases. I had, you know, the baseball perspective stuff and, and, and the Bill James stuff. I had a whole bunch of Wall Street titles and I had a lot of Vegas-centric books, mostly poker titles. And I looked and I thought, you know, all three of those topics, they sell up, they're, they're really the same thing. They're all about critical reasoning. And I thought, how has nobody ever put this into one, you know, into one product? And I thought, man, and that became the basis for my book proposal. And I t it was uh, really the, the elevator pitch for the book proposal was, it's Moneyball meets Bringing Down the House. And I got to tell you, that was a great pitch for an unknown author because just about everyone from agents to publishers, like they got that immediately. They're like, oh, yeah, no, I get that. Let's, let's, let's read this. Right. They've heard about both. Plus, if you could pick somebody to write that book, it would be somebody, you know, you wrote some stuff in college. You've always been interested in sports. And then you worked on Wall Street for a while. So it kind of all makes sense. You definitely touched on something that, uh, let's just get into it, Vegas. I mean, you went and lived the life for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So this is, this is a true story. So I hand the book in, and the book covers the 2011 season. And I handed the book in to the publisher last March. And, they call, and we knew it wasn't going to be published for another year. It's just a very long lead time, and, and they wanted it to come out at, around the spring training. So I thought I was done, and I was about to start looking for work again. And they called me and said, Joe, we love the book. Would you consider going to Las Vegas with the marketing budget for the book 
and betting on baseball games for it. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. My first thought was, that is like asking a Kardashian if she'd consider making a sex date. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that is no question about that. So I did, and I called some family and friends, and actually very easily raised a million-dollar fund last summer. Mm-hmm. And I did, go to Wall St- or I did go to Vegas for the second half of the season, and yeah, it was a job. Um, it, it, it was glamorous in the sense that I could have never imagined doing that, uh, but it was, it was full-time work. I mean, you get up in the morning, and, and you know how a baseball slate is. They, the games start at you know, sometimes 10, 10 a.m. in the West Coast and, and go till 10 p.m. on the West Coast. And uh, fortunately, I, I lived in, in a, uh, what was more like an apartment there rather than a hotel. I, I stayed at the Trump for much of my time there, and there's no casino there. And it was just, uh, it really felt like, okay, yeah, this is my office. I don't know if I can believe that. Like, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can try and tell me that, oh, it was full work and it was my office. But you're living in the Trump in Vegas on a book publishing company's money. Oh, yeah. That uh, is pretty cool. That's amazing. And then I know you ended up with something like a 40-plus percent return, right? Yeah. In, in 2011, I was up uh, 41%. And in 2012, it was only 14%. And uh, I think what that showed is 41% was very fortunate. A, a lot went right. No, my model does not have that kind of expected edge on a year-to-year basis. I think it's probably from high single digits to into the teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think that over two years it kind of showed that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll certainly be running it again this year. Yeah, and I'll be looking forward to that. Now, that reminds me of something. If we can use your information, you know, your analysis, what Nate Silver does, what all these people are doing on a sport that is, you know, 162 games, there's a lot going on. Why can we only reach as as a hope, you know, 10% return? Why can't we be 30, 40, 50? I mean, just talk well, about what you've learned you- in that. I think you can. I will say that my return is really based on conservative principles. And again, this was something I talked about in the book as my lesson from working at Lehman Brothers for 13 years, which is if you have a positive EV or expected value venture, the mandatory thing to do is to make sure you're always around next week, next month, next quarter, to take advantage of that. And that was the sin of Lehman Brothers. It's not that upper management lost money betting on real estate. That's okay. We all have losing trades. It's that they made such a massive bet that they relegated the other profitable divisions to rounding errors. And therefore, they weren't around, you know, for for the next few years to let uh, you know, for that for that edge, that that really great franchise they had trading bonds and stocks, uh, they they blew it. So I have a very conservative capital, you know, approach that I that I took to, uh, um, uh, you know, that I took to my baseball betting. I am sure that there would have been other people who would have made more because they would be uh, they'd be more aggressive. But I was more concerned with protecting the downside than I was maximizing the upside. Sure, and you, you would have plenty of people who would have seen you hitting it big and they would have gone all in, lost all their money, and instead of the 40% return, they're negative 50. I mean, it's that's the story of gambling, right? Right, right. Now, now, given that, I mean, do you struggle with the fact 
that in sports, I don't gamble as much on baseball, but I am pretty intense on football. And the smallest thing can really take you out of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars for some of the, you know, the larger betters. I mean, that, that randomness really can hurt you at times. Did, did, did you struggle with that or did you kind of just keep looking at the long haul? I'll tell you, I didn't struggle with it. And I'll tell you what my approach to that is. If you have a model to bet football and you're down at the end of the year, to me, you haven't, or if you're up at the end of the year, you don't really know about the effectiveness of that model yet because there were only 16 games per team, Mm -hmm. you know, a total of 250 games. In baseball, if you have a model and you're down at the end of the year, my philosophy is you don't have a model because there were 2,400 games, and you shouldn't – if you're down, especially if you're significantly down, your model didn't have an edge. Uh, so I really looked at the long run, that variance does take care of itself in baseball. And the other key is, if you've only ever bet a small amount of your capital on each game, you really don't have to worry about those cold streaks you hit. They suck. But you're not, you know, like in football, man, you know, there's probably some 10 and 6 teams that go 6 and 10. It just doesn't happen. And, you know, you don't have team, you know, team, in baseball, you don't have any 100-win teams that were actually 60-win teams. Right, <laughs> right. And that's one of the things that blows my mind about your preseason um, emails and the and the the you know recommendations you make is you actually say this team should win ninety three point six games and I'm like what the hell how where did you come up with that number but to be honest I mean when I track it you you're pretty spot on and you know oftentimes that's that's insane I mean it seems like magic work almost you know. Yeah, it, what, it, it, what it really is is predicting – it's predicting those runs scored and runs allowed. The, the record actually falls out from that. And if you get that – yeah, it, well, there's obviously there's some sort of variance bands that go around those, uh, those predictions. I will say for 2011 and 2012, my total wins projections had a smaller least mean squared error than the bookmakers did and that's two years running and that's what i consider a win or a loss I'm oh like, absolutely okay, if, if if my error is smaller than theirs i should make money you know and i have a note here i wanted to ask you about beating the bookmakers because in the same sense that wall street is this hidden you know idealized community for many for the sports betting world that is what the books are the bookmakers are they I'm, I'm sure you've talked to some of them and you've gotten to know some people or you know more than the average person about them are they also the smartest brightest people or how do they come up with all of their projections and make money year over year aside from the vig obviously well it's the vig okay it is unquestionably the vig um and no i will say that and I did talk to some bookmakers there, and they tell me the same thing that I used to say as a market maker, especially when I was a NASDAQ market maker. And that is, they are at an informational disadvantage most of the time. Uh, in other words, the people with the big money on the other side of the counter are smarter than they are. And I always liken it back to when I traded biotech stocks. I was trading with portfolio managers and hedge fund managers at who were medically credentialed they 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 were doctors and 
they understood the science behind the stocks they were trading. I have no chance of ever being smarter than them. Mm. But it was still possible to run a thriving business by understanding how to facilitate them trading with each other. And I think that Vegas doesn't really do that. They do that in poker, I would say, by just collecting rent from all these great poker players that are just banging heads with each other or trying to take you know the money from the fish. Right. Uh, in sports betting, they simply do it through the VIG. And if you really look, and I've done this, I've looked through the uh, Nevada Gaming Commission figures, and the house take collectively of the entire state of Nevada is always a little bit less of the VIG. So that there are some smart people out there uh, that the smart base of the customers water down their their gross margin essentially ah. um, as to what it should be theoretically. So I think that's in in football and basketball they certainly get enough play. There's just enough volume to make up for the smart money. In baseball, it's a little bit different. You certainly don't get as much even action per side. Uh, so they're a little leery of smart people in baseball. They know their baseball lines are probably mo- most vulnerable. And for some reason, the house edge is smallest in baseball, which doesn't make sense to me. It's a great situation if you're in, uh, better. Yeah, it's a great situation for you. Now, w- especially in baseball, given how many teams there are, games there are, all that, I mean, there is no way. How many people do they employ? I mean, there's no way they can be – as up to speed as somebody who that's all they do. I, I, I don't know. They're I just not. feel like there's a they're, way to beat it. <laughs> they're not. And what people don't realize is people give them too much credit. People give the house too much credit when it comes to baseball bookmaking. And, and I'll tell you what my, why I think that is. I think to some degree, wisdom of crowds definitely has uh, um, logic to it. And there is no wisdom of crowds on the bookmaking side, uh, on that side of the counter, because it used to be in the old days, if you went to Vegas in the 80s, every house had their own bookmaker. They'd set their own lines. And eventually, you get all those bookmakers, eventually the lines would converge, maybe in a day or two, right? And that's sort of the wisdom of crowds of the bookmakers. Well, nobody has bookmakers anymore. They've all been fired. And, and it, it kind of, it's just like across uh, the rest of uh, corporate America. Hmm. They were fired in the name of cost cutting, and there is essentially one consulting firm who puts out the line. And I'm not saying they're dumb because they're not. Right. But I think they use very sort of simple regression to the mean type. You know, something that might be able to throw a hoop around that might be able to explain 85% of a result. But boy, that, that to me, that other 15% is there from the ta- for the taking from the smart crowd. And the VIG helps cut into some of that. But I really think in baseball, the lines are soft because there is one bookmaker. And now it sort of seems like it comes from overseas, like once Pinnacle sets their line or some of the overseas books. That's just what everybody follows. So. I don't feel like I'm going up against 12 or 15 smart bookmakers. Uh, I'm not going up against the consensus of 12 or 15 smart bookmakers. I'm just going up against one guy. And frankly, I think I can come up with something that has, like I used the term earlier, a lower, you know, least mean squared error. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm a baseball fan and a gambling fan. So if I want to start gambling on baseball and I have no idea how to make models and all that kind of stuff, where do I look? I mean, do you do you provide services with selling models? Do you do anything along those lines? Is there places I, that you can lead people to? Yeah, I can lead I can lead people. I don't uh, I don't do any, you know, I don't do any of that myself. What I sell is, you know, my book. Sure. And certainly the the template is in there to do it yourself. Uh, you could certainly, you know, kind of, I really lay some building blocks in there. So people, one, I wanted to have credibility and two, I wanted to have transparency. Right. So I really kind of showed what I did and the, all the data I get comes from places like, um, you know, baseball prospectus and fan graphs. And then there's some, you know, projection systems. There's a, there's a place called steamer projections, which I find has some great pitching projections. And it's from there that I started building stuff. I'll tell you where I'd start if I were someone. If I were someone, and I was really curious about that, if I was curious about college basketball, I'd start at, say, Ken Palm. And if I were curious about pro football, I'd start at Football Outsiders. And if I were curious about baseball, maybe I'd start with either the projected standings in my, you know, that I'm going to put out, or Mm -hmm. maybe that are at Baseball Perspectives. And I might pick one or two teams and say, okay, if they're right about this, let's see, compare this to how you know, the opening lines are, and it, let's sort of, I'm going to start tracking this on a day-by-day basis and see if following their models or their sort of out-of-consensus projections for a couple of these teams, if it has any merit. And if I start to see a small exit, I tend to get curious then, and then I want to really see how it works, and I kind of want to build my own. But that's, right. that's sort of the intellectual curiosity I have. No, I, I, I like that, and those are all things that, I think I try to do, and now I just do it because I listen to what you say in your emails. So I'm looking forward to this baseball season. Now, to round it out, I just wanted to see real quick. So who's going to win it this year? Ah, okay. I like uh, in the American League, and I actually have uh, an out-of-consensus one here. I think the Tampa Bay Rays are – I don't think they'll have the best record in the American League. I think Detroit will. But I think the Tampa Bay Rays just may be the best team. And that's who who I'm taking as my World Series pick – they, I think, are being completely overlooked. And I'll give you just a couple of, you know, my favorite critical reasoning ways to look at it. They won, I think, 91 games last year and did not make the playoffs because the A's and the Rangers won 94-93 and the Orioles, I think, won 93. So, but when I really look at the Rays' component, hitting and pitching, I think they played to a 94 or 95-win uh, talent. So if they performed exactly the same this year, if they put up exactly the same statistics, I think they'd have 94 or 95 wins because they were a little unlucky with their sequencing, and that's something that no team can can control. Now, they've lost James Shields, and I and, and his starts will be replaced by, uh, I think, Jeff, uh, uh, Jeff Neiman. Now, James Shields is better than Jeff Neiman. If they had James Shields this year, they would be better than if they had Jeff uh, Neiman. However... James Shields, in, in amassing that 95-win results last year, James Shields did not have a good year. He gave up, I think, 111 runs, and over the course of the innings he pitched, that's like a 4.1 runs allowed. Not ERA, but actually runs allowed. So Neiman is a career, has a career runs allowed of just over four. So it is very probable that even though he's not as good as Shields, when it comes to comparing how they're going to be this year to last year, he might match Shields' production, and there might not be a drop-off. 
And that's hard for people to understand because they know Shields is better, and Neiman does not have that upside. But you look at marginal changes. They're a 94-win team to start, and there's no change. There will, there will be no change in my projection in runs allowed going from Shields to Neiman. Now, if Shields were there, I would have them even higher. That's just. I think that's the core. I think they're hitting is better than people realize, and most of all, I think everyone is overvaluing Toronto this year, and because they're in the same division, they're dinging Tampa's chances. So I think Tampa is a, it's, they're my pick to be the best team in the American League and, and, and come out of there, and even best of all, I think they're very undervalued. How about best fantasy sleepers and then duds for all of oh, us that haven't, haven't drafted yet? Yeah. Not a specialty, specialty of mine, so I'm going to have to think a little bit here. Um, fantasy duds, I can tell you, I'm very suspicious of Dan Heron, who moved from the Angels to the Nationals this oh, year. Oh, we love the Nationals. <laughs> yeah, so that's the one. I, look, I think the Nationals are the class of the uh, NL East. But I do that's think I that yeah. if they think they're going to be even better replacing Edwin Jackson with Dan Heron, my model sees a lot of red flags on Heron. It sees a guy whose strikeout rate, so we're talking about skill sets here, strikeout rate has dropped, I, I think, three or four years in a row. Walk rate went up a little bit. His ground baller, he was always a, he was always a fly ball pitcher. He's become an extreme fly ball pitcher. You can get away with that pitching in Anaheim and some road games in Oakland and Seattle. Coming to the National League East might be a little bit harder. And then most alarming of all, I told you I also kind of look at velocity as a skill set. His velocity has dropped something like seven years in a row, and it really dropped last year. So I don't see a guy who is a candidate for, say, a bounce-back year like Adam Dunn was last year, maybe Ryan Howard and Chase Utley are this year. I see a guy who has a permanently declining skill set, and that is a guy that that I'm pretty sure my model will be, because the Nationals will be heavy favorites just about every game they play, that's a guy I'm pretty sure I'm going to be betting against the Nationals just about every time that huh. he's on the mound. So are you taking the Nationals to win the NL? Yeah, definitely. They're definitely the National League East. And if Zach <laughs> Granke is not 100%, then I've got the Nationals having the best record in the National League. That's um, what I like to hear. Yeah. If, if the Dodgers are at full strength and now you've got Ramirez out for 10 weeks, and if Granke is really hurt and he's going to you know, not be effective for a quarter or a third of the season, uh, then I think you got to have the Nationals as, as having the best record. I love it. Well, Joe, I know we've kept you on a while. I did want to, you know, uh, some of our listeners might not realize that it seems a lot of it's baseball weighted, but your book is Trading Bases, a story about Wall Street, gambling, and baseball, and it is a story. That is one thing. It is a great read. You have these the, a way of telling the story and not just spouting out statistics, even though some of us, like John and I, like that. So that's one of, the, I think, the things you do the best is tell stories in that book. And I wanted to see, is there anywhere else that people can kind of hear what you have to say, aside from the book, the, you know, sign up for your emails or follow you on Twitter? Yeah, I've got my, my website. When you were talking about the previews, uh, they're all on my website at, uh, and for, you know, through all of last year's and all the archives are there too, at uh, tradingbases.squarespace.com. And, and Chris, I really appreciate you saying that about the book. It's what I was aiming for, and I am a first-time author, so you don't know if you pulled it off. Uh, but that's exactly <laughs> what I was trying to do, was simply tell stories and to try to make the numbers fun. 
you know, throw some pop culture analogies around with them. And I've really been gratified that some people are rating it as a business book. Other people are rating it as a, uh, you know, as a baseball book. And that, uh, that's that's very gratifying. Thank you. Yeah, and are you going to be doing? I know you did in the past, kind of um, Twitter updates because that was my favorite thing. Was I can't keep up on lineups and all that. And I know you have a lot of other stuff going on, so you might not be doing that this year. But wanted to see. I definitely will. I'll definitely be doing some of that on Twitter, and I might even. Uh, one thing I did last year was I posted a huge amount of my picks on a site called wager minds, which is actually a really cool site for, uh, for guys that like to, to sports bet. It's a place to, you know, track your own picks or to track other picks. And, and I probably put in a season long contest there, I probably put about 900 picks last year and I ended up finishing 12th out of, out of a couple thousand people. And I was oh, wow. top four for almost the whole year and just dropped off in the last uh, last two weeks. But that's another place, and I alert people on Twitter to that. And, and my Twitter handle is uh, MagicRatSF, which is a, a little Springsteen reference there. <laughs> I love it. All right, Joe, again, thanks so much. Honestly, it was great to talk to you. I'm glad we, we kind of got to catch up a little over the phone, seeing how our communication up till now has been mostly uh, email. Uh, thanks, guys. I, I you know, love being on, and, uh, and maybe we'll do a mid-season update or something. Definitely. All right. Best of luck with uh, the book and this upcoming season. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Thanks, Joe. Before you guys go running to set up your online betting accounts so that you can start gambling on baseball, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com first. Check out what we've got going on over at the site. Sign up for the newsletter. Click the Amazon banner anytime you do your shopping. Shoot us an email. Yeah, and uh, we tweet sometimes. You can check us out at Smart People Pod. But really, we just want you guys to enjoy the show and be involved in what we do. I mean, we do this just because we enjoy it, and we like hearing from you guys. Reach out. Let us know. We've gotten the coolest emails recently. Guys just saying, thanks. This is awesome. You make my work day easier. And it uh, it definitely puts a smile on my face and gives John something to do. Yeah, and we also get emails saying, hey, your website sucks right now. It keeps going down. Mm-hmm. We understand that. We're trying to work with our hosting provider. We pretty much fix it, right? Yeah, it's it's fixed for the most part. We still get some downtimes throughout the day during you know popular download periods. But That's what happens when you get put on the front page. Yeah, it's, it's getting better, and it'll be a lot more stable in the weeks to come. All right, be sure to tune in same time next week. Smart People Podcast, check it out.